Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Wesker demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older brother, Wesley. That was weird. What was that? What was that? I'm not sure. Today we're talking Oscar frontrunner. Is it? As some have said, a film from 2021, The Power of the Dog. I feel like saying that one too with like a vague British accent. No, like a break year, like a break. Like a like a <laughs> like a vague Euro accent, the power of the dog. I, I don't know what's wrong with me today. I feel like saying it like kind of throwaway, like the power of the dog. Power of the dog. Like or I feel like saying, "I'm going hungry." Stop. No, yeah. no, that's not the same. I'm That's, going hungry. Is that all you know of that song? I don't feed on the power less because <laughs> my cup's already overfilled. You know what's weird is I didn't think of that one time. You didn't? No. Dude, Temple of the Dog is your music, as yeah, Paloma calls it. I got this this title wrong, too. I, I said like... You said the day of the dog day or the year the of the dog. The year of the dog, right. Well, what you have to do is say everything like Benedict Cumberbatch in this movie. Very forcefully and clearly, Fatso, you got a sore gut. <laughs> I seriously thought that he was going to be, that it was going to be weird, like the Mauritanian, his accent, which which we found super distracting. But So distracting but it was Mauritanian. Because he didn't do like the heavy drawl in this one. And none of them did. I thought, did this was this a realistic, what was it? It, it was a... Well, it was 1925, 1920s. but they were in Montana. But also these guys super educated. Like Phil, at least, mm-hmm. the Benedict Cumberbatch character, he went to Yale and he was yep. a polymath. He could play the banjo flawlessly. He was a rancher. He was good at a bunch of different stuff. But he concealed it in his brusque, dirty rancher right. thing. Like as much as it was revealed that he went to Yale, he was still on about the panano. You going to play the panano? <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was a subtle jab at her and her podunkness right. and kind of an affectation. But he definitely was a contradiction in many ways. But he was, you know, he's a wealthy ranch hand 
who works tirelessly as if he was working hand to mouth. Every single day. Every day, leading these people, driving the cattle. And it was curious to me that he was so hands-on, whereas George wasn't. And I was wondering, like, does George think that he's better than Phil? Or does he not want to get his hands dirty? He's like wearing a suit, whereas Phil's wearing dirty rancher clothes and, and chaps and stuff. Furry ones. Very furry ones. But George, it turns out, wasn't, it didn't appear that George felt that he was superior to his brother. If, if anything, he felt like he was maybe even inferior to him or at least unable to stand up to the power of his brother. I think George played more of the rancher with the suit and uh, the finery and didn't necessarily have to. I think he had a history of getting his hands dirty. But Phil much more reveled in the idea of being in the hands-on guy down in the dirt, you know, with the boys kind of thing. But he made no secret of the fact that, George, you know, where were we 20 years ago? You were fat, stupid, couldn't get your act together, couldn't go to school kind of thing. And I saved you and Bronco Bill saved you. and Bronco Henry. Right. They started in, in the same place and they took diverging paths but strangely embraced roles that that were contradictory they both started from the same place but phil ascended to a position of intellectual and educational superiority and then kind of went back to the land you know what i mean where george utilizes his position for the steady climb to society and fine clothes and being able to speak at dinners and stuff and meet with the governor and courthouse maidens or whatever and yet, didn't you get the sense that Phil revered George? Well, it's strange because anytime Phil came into a place where he had to make an emotional decision, he would overcompensate and retreat, like enfold himself in this perceived masculinity. He got really aggressive. And this idea that his brother might be taken away from him, he seemed awfully upset about that after kind of berating George the whole time. And likewise, I didn't really understand why George felt compelled. Like, why was he beholden to a brother who was obviously disdainful to him and kind of accepts his role as a total jerk wherever they go? I think that he was under the power of the dog. <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm too literal about this, but wasn't Phil the top dog? I mean, he asserted himself amongst his men, in his household, that he was the one who wielded the power. Absolutely. If nothing else, he was the loudest voice, the squeakiest wheel. Right. And, and maybe that was his super masculine facade, concealing some other secrets or persuasions, which we can get to. But it seemed like Phil did wield or did exert a, a special kind of power over George. At least George allowed it in the sense that like, he understood that they were kind of connected and that he was going to be saddled with Phil, basically, as his lot in life, until that came to its natural end. Not that Phil came to a natural end in this film, <laughs> but for George, who was passive about it, he was thereby kind of relieved of this burden that he had accepted, which was having Phil in his life. There's a difference between, look, he's my brother and I'm kind of stuck with him because we've always been brothers and we've always had this business together. But you're talking about the power that Phil held over George to a degree. And I do think it was something. It was m certainly more than tolerance, but it wasn't enough for him to be dissuaded from marrying this girl as 
Phil thought it might have been. He thought he might have been able to drive her away, antagonize her enough to where she would go on her. But he was, George was steadfast and determined and, you know, didn't tell him that he was going to get married, just kind of went ahead and did it. He didn't seem like he was cowed by his brother at all. He was just sort of on a different wavelength. And then later on, when after their courtship and they were together, he said, you know, it's nice not to be alone. A very emotional scene for the George character. Right. And certainly not. He wasn't alone. He was seems like he was always in the company of his brother and all like the literally like sleeping in the next bed. But to him, that was alone, not solitude, but just an emotional nothing to bounce off of, you know? Yeah. An emotional isolation. It seemed like there was a certain security in the relationship between the brothers Like there was an understanding that they wouldn't leave each other, that George wouldn't leave Phil and vice versa. There was some deeper, maybe cosmic connection between the two of them that allowed George the latitude to kind of make these own decisions, maybe in subtle defiance of his brother and the power he held over him. But there wasn't ever a question of, you know, you married this woman and I'm out of here or we're not brothers anymore or there's a real rupture in our relationship, right? Phil took out any frustration or resentment that he had for George and his marriage to Rose on his horse or on Rose. And later on... On Peter, Peter. his son. The kind of oddly cast Cody Smith McPhee. Yeah, he seems like the most appropriate cast. This is not the first gay character that Benedict Cumberbatch has played. Nope. He was Alan Turing in The Imitation Game, garnered him an Academy Award nomination. Right, and also he played the kind of gay Sherlock Holmes. Well, no, he had some emotional suppressing thing that logic was key. And reason was trumped all emotion. Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes had the same thing. It seemed as though he were just kind of asexual, incapable of romance. They never suggested anything between he and Watson. And he had the lady who was the lady of his life that he never actually got romantically attached to. However, the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes did skew a little bit more into that territory. The Robert Downey Jr.? Right. Uh-huh. And when the, when the Jude Law Watson character went to get married, Holmes was very threatened and antagonized her, used his superior intellect and logic to put her down. And she was very, she was super offended and and threw wine in his face and smacked him and stuff. But it was implied that his spiritual, emotional connection to Watson was something that he would go to any lengths to preserve. Mm-hmm. And that was, so that's the Sherlock connection, even though it's not the same Sherlock. <laughs> right. It means long been colloquially discussed that Sherlock Holmes was gay, and I thought that Benedict Cumberbatch's portrayal was infused with some of that. I guess all this to say that, at least in in Alan Turing, there's no question that Benedict Cumberbatch has explored these kinds of views on sexuality in characters. So he talked about it. Benedict Cumberbatch talked about Phil and what Phil's deal was. And he said that Phil never got to a place in his life where he understood that aspect of himself, but that he, Benedict Cumberbatch, looked at the character of Peter and recognized that Peter was so far along in his journey, like it wasn't a big deal to him. I asked myself, why would Peter cross that gauntlet to go and look at the birds in the nest with everybody catcalling him and stuff and calling him names? Like, why would he subject himself to that? I asked that same question to myself. Why? And Benedict Cumberbatch seemed to suggest that he didn't concern himself 
with who he was or how perceived he was, while the slights to him by Phil were completely obvious, you know, the lisping and all the stuff and the mocking and saying, what fine woman did these flowers? And the Miss Nancy-ing, he called him Miss Nancy when he arrived. You never saw, like, the pain on his face. He never let it get to him. He never, you know, went and sobbed. That was entirely his mother's cross to bear. And he'd just, like, go outside. Peter never, Peter was unflappable. Right. He'd all be insulted and stuff. So he he went out and did like the gayest thing anyone's ever done, which is like hula hoop in the dark. He didn't care. <laughs> I don't know that it was a conscious realization. He just was effeminate. And obviously that never came to pass. He didn't really lust over Phil or and, and maybe kind of likewise. Although ultimately when it came down to it, I was a little bit confused about everyone's motivations. And by then, Peter was in a completely different place that I kind of didn't expect. In that moment when Phil is finishing the rope and they're sharing a cigarette and Peter is watching him like a hawk, like a predator. I have to be honest from the outset, I didn't know what he was planning to do. And in a weird way, this movie bears a second watching. Everything would be much clearer. So much so that Kelly reminded me of the voiceover at the top. You know, how could I not protect my mother? That kind of thing, which I had mm-hmm. comple- almost completely forgotten about in connection with the events. He was disembodied. I didn't have any concept of mm-hmm. that character. He wasn't introduced right away. It wasn't totally mm-hmm. clear. Yeah, I didn't think about it either until you just brought it up now. But it, but I was aware of the genre shifts of this film. And we weren't, we certainly weren't set up for a thriller which is ultimately what this became in its third act. Like it started off as a Western and then it kind of shifted into a domestic drama and then it became a thriller. And I don't think that anyone really anticipated that turn. In right. And, and as it turned, I didn't even catch it because I was not on the watcher train for this one. It deceived me with this laid back, you know, kind of Western ways. And they were just moseying <laughs> through this movie and... There are long shots of him walking through the barnyard and all of a sudden there was intrigue and I was like, wait a minute, I missed a step. (laughs) I think that that was kind of intentional. It seemed like Jane Campion kind of lulled us into a false sense of security so that when Peter started setting his plan into motion, we were oblivious. And then suddenly the axe falls and we were like, and I was going to say, and then we were like frogs in the pot, but that's way too many. That's a weird mixed analogy. The analogy being that supposedly a frog will sit in water and if you turn up the heat, it won't notice it until it's so hot that it dies. So we're yeah. watching these things unfold and we're like, and then all of a sudden it's, it's a real thriller and we're in the middle of the hot water and don't even know it. It should be obvious to everyone that we didn't read that neither of us read the book. It was a relatively obscure book that someone had recommended to Jane. Also, Campion. an old book. Yeah, but apparently it is much clearer. Benedict Cumberbatch recommends this book, and there are journeys and stuff that the characters go through that make their arcs a little bit more clear, as all books tend to do. Uh, likewise, there was a bunch of stuff. There were even more angles to the Phil character. He was an ironmonger, and he was a this and a that, and did all these amazing things. Uh, only a few of which translated to the screen, but it still gave you a very strange picture. And it makes you question his earlier sort of simple, direct approach to, you know, mocking this woman and mocking her son and being a seemingly oblivious jerk. You would think a person that's that educated would be just a touch more self-aware unless he was masking or concealing or overcompensating for something in himself. I mean, that's what you're suggesting happened, right? There was something that was deep down that he was unaware of 
except on a subconscious level or denying. Well, self-care is important, right? And you crawl through the little hollow into your secret garden and you bathe and like smell flowers and lie in the grass and stuff. And that's all fine. And then he pulled the thing out of his junk. It was all like this delicate cloth thing. And we were <laughs> looking at the initials. And we were, this is how oblivious we were. I don't know about Kelly, because she came a long way in this one. But I was like, B-H. And she was like, what's the kid's name? What's like, who's who's the B-H? And we were so disconnected from the obvious reverence to, to Buckshot, Holgarth, or whatever. Bronco Henry. Right? That we Bronco were, Henry. You mean the name that was literally stamped on or etched onto a brass plate and mounted in his barn with the saddle <laughs> that he made him ride all awkwardly and so i don't know I, I didn't catch on and then i it became more obvious because peter's character was a bit more obvious and he crawls through the thing and oh he's gonna spy it on him bathing or whatever but he didn't he stood there it was not sexual it was you know, and he also wasn't shy and he also wasn't like, would you like to join me? He like yelled at him and chased him away, like all dong flapping, you know, and like ran him off. It was very weird. And the relationship between Peter and Phil changed so drastically. Like he clearly antagonized him. And I fully expected when Phil was kind of oddly buddying up with Peter after the incident in the secret garden with the Bronco Henry handkerchief, like I firmly was waiting for that other shoe to drop. Like in my mind, 100% Phil was buddying up with Peter so that he could do away with him as a, as a means to kind of eliminating his secret, but also as a means to further antagonizing Rose. Like I thought his master plan was do away with Peter, but do it subtly in a way that he can still salvage his relationship with his with his brother, with George. Was that not the case? Like, that was never his intention? I don't think so. I think that he was genuinely, in his kind of awkward Phil way, befriending Peter. You know, he didn't express it in a way that was completely logical. But I think that what happened from that incident at the lake was that he identified a kindred spirit in Peter and was genuinely taking him under his wing. And so Peter took everything that happened to him, it seemed, in relation to Phil at face value. Did he? I came upon you in your secret place or whatever. I got run off. I'm scared. Oh, now let's go buddy off in the woods or whatever and like talk against a rock. And he's like, okay. Until he didn't. Yeah, but then Rose was clearly distraught at the idea of her son going anywhere with Phil. And maybe I was really channeling her. Maybe I was really like siding with Rose. Like, yeah, this is a really bad idea. Well, it was a bad idea because we saw how clearly hateful he was, how he, much he antagonized Rose, how clear by Johnny Greenwood's score that there was trouble brewing. There were like the tense violins. And I'm sure you watched this with subtitles. And it was like tense music or like pensive strings. And you're like, uh-oh, <laughs> something's happening. Playing banjo expertly. <laughs> right. But the music was pretty tense and, uh, you know. It was not unlike There Will Be Blood, a lot of which was driven by the score. It was. It was a lot like There Will Be Blood, also Johnny Greenwood. Yep. And also kind of a slow burn Western. Our Western's kind of like zombies. There's like the slow zombie. There's like the slow <laughs> Western and the fast Western. For sure. There's the gunslinging Western. I don't think, did anybody show or fire a gun at all in this movie? I don't think so. So, I mean, it's also pretty late for a Western. 1925 was 40 years after the glory days of the Old West. This wasn't the Wild West, per se. This was like the settled rancher West. This is the slow New Zealand West. <laughs> but I definitely consider this a Western, even though it was set in the time and looked, I guess, appropriate enough. 
Yeah, so Jane Campion's from New Zealand. She's right. a she's a Kiwi. Uh-huh. So this is kind of like akin to a Paul Greengrass News of the World international take on a Western. A gorgeous landscape, very languidly paced. Definitely a bit of a slow burn until it wasn't. What would you say about the acting? So I thought, boy, Benedict Cumberbatch is hitting it really hard. He's so obvious and heavy-handed in his approach. I thought it was a little bit overacty. And then I kind of understood why that was. I actually thought that there was something more complicated with the old lady and the old gent and the fact that they were supposed to be brothers. I expected fully for them to be like a Thor, Loki, one of them's adopted because they don't look anything alike kind of vibe. Yeah, this was this whole movie was like filled with families of people who don't look alike. Right. And, and honestly, they would have looked just a little bit more alike. There were some casting changes. Benedict Cumberbatch has a distinctive look and originally up for the role of George. Speaking of There Will Be Blood was Paul Dano, who looks much more like him. And then someone else was going to be in the role of Rose. And I cannot remember who it was. I think that um, What's-Her-Face would have been great in this. A young uh, Naomi Watts. I mean, sure. It's just a blonde thing. You know, the really tore-up thing. (laughs) So speaking of blondes who are all tore-up, it seemed to be implied that Rose's husband died because he drank himself to death. Uh, He was definitely a suicide. Right. Maybe this comes from the book, but Kirsten Dunst said it doesn't really make sense that Rose, because of the antagonism, would take up drinking. And that didn't seem terribly clear to me that it established that Phil's appearance and continued involvement in their lives, being he was the brother of the man she was, you know, engaged to marry, ultimately did marry, was not going anywhere. And so she was turned to drink even while he antagonized her from the window upstairs. I mean, it was kind of, that was terrible. And I felt so bad for her. She was kind of in such a pathetic state of her addiction. But that was pretty clearly spelled out when she takes the drink from the umbrella cocktail yeah. after the, the failed piano concert. Like that was the beginning of the end, or that was at least the beginning of her dealing with the fill antagonism with alcohol. It felt like an end, right? Didn't it feel like she was going to get all liquored up and do away with the crass brother and then, you know, have to face the judgment of her husband and stuff? But when he died, then that was kind of the end of the problem. Was was she capable of stopping at that point? Because they didn't make and there was no resolution. He was just out of their lives. And I guess they were going to be okay. That was the impression I got, right? Well, at least that's what I read off of Peter's face. Yeah, I didn't see good places for Phil to go because the role that he should have played in the family where they had expectations of him being socially graceful and he was just a jerk to everyone involved and kind of killed that party and uh, just kind of roaming the ranch all stinky and stuff. Like he was just going to be a thorn in everyone's side until he wasn't. Yeah, I th- I think so. And for some reason, because of the power he held or whatever, they were all kind of oddly accepting of it. Except for Peter. I think his plans were set in motion a lot earlier than we kind of assume. You say that Peter was taking Phil's actions at face value, but at a certain point that turned and Peter had his own motivations no, clearly. But that was my impression. I was like, well, why would he trust this dude who suddenly wants to be his buddy? You know, how do you know that he doesn't have his own nefarious plans? Should we spell out so that just to make sure we're on the same page and for our audience's benefit, what we think actually happened between Peter and Phil? Sure. Go. Me? Like what happened in the <laughs> end or the whole arc? In the end. Well, I, I I certainly understand that Peter went deliberately looking for, and he found a dead beef, a dead cow, 
and then he put on gloves very deliberately, cut the strips, brought them back because they reinforced this anthrax thing, which wasn't terribly clear to me, several times throughout the movie. So he hung the strips to dry. And when seemingly disconnectedly, his mother, where Phil was strangely attached to these hides, which indeed George confirmed several times were just going to be burned, refused to even allow the Native Americans to have those hides under any circumstances. It was like his pre-constructed, you know, discrimination or whatever. Then when the hides were taken away, Peter then used that opportunity to imply that he had reserved one of the hides for himself. I can't remember the exact wording because we went back and examined it. I kept some or I took some. It was very deliberately implying that the poisoned hide, the anthraxed hide that he had cut into strips and let dry over the fence was from Phil's own hides for his ropes. You know, so he watched him very carefully, not have the gloves on and braid the rope and then got sick and died. But what I couldn't figure out was how was he originally going to, because he said, I wanted to be like you. I said, that's why I took the hide, cut it into strips. I have some, they're not all gone. And he seemed relieved to the point of tears. Like Phil was really moved that he could still continue his rope. It didn't make a tremendous amount of sense to me. And then he got sick and he died and they were better off, but I didn't know how it wasn't like Peter knew that his mom was going to give away those hides. So I didn't know how he was going to put that plan into effect. I mean, he could have even simply asked Phil to incorporate the hides that he had cured or whatever. Show me how to do it or something? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's. I think I do think he seized his opportunity and it was fortuitous, I guess, from Peter's perspective that Rose did give the hides away or sell the hides. I don't think that Phil really cared about the hides, but he cared about this rope and cared about those people not getting his hides under any circumstances exactly because that wasn't a surprise because the housekeeper or lady or whatever knew you know he would never let them have those hides right out of principle so it was a principle that had been established previously but also i'm not sure that rose planned it out she went out there she was really drunk stumbled out there and was begging for them to take the thing and and you have to remember that exchange was right before she passed out with the gloves from drinking. So I don't know that it was calculated. It was just, it was some act of defiance that she could offer. Yes. Right. I think that Peter also sealed the deal when he asked Phil to show him how to do it. And Phil washed his cut hand, his previously already cut and open <laughs> wound hand in the Man. anthrax water. The hand that he put under the water that was like still gushing blood. Yeah. Man, I think that that thing up. <laughs> but that was his that was his whole like heartened exterior kind of persona that he was, you know, badass or whatever and I mean he obviously didn't know that the water was poisoned with anthrax, but I think that kind of sealed the deal and then yeah, he's handling the braid and all that stuff and you, and you can see on Peter's face how confident he is that the deed has been done and that, you know, it's only a matter of time and no one's going to accuse him. Although George does find it a little perplexing when the coroner whom or the whomever did the autopsy talks about the presence of anthrax in uh in phil's body so it seemed like in retrospect the introduction that we had with no point of reference was a mea culpa that he was admitting that he did it deliberately to help his mother to save his mother to protect his mother and you know the movie ended and i was like okay and then we like checked our phones and stuff and then kelly was like oh he killed his dad and I was like, what? 
who killed their dad? And she's like, Peter killed his dad. He killed Phil just like he killed his dad because his dad was abusing his mom. And I was like, okay. And I started doing the research or whatever. And it turns out that Kirsten Dunst had a connection with Cody Smith McPhee, who was her, played her son. And she said, what if we had like a secret? that nobody else knows and that it can inform and round out their characters. So they decided privately that he had killed his dad to protect his mom and she acknowledged and accepted it. So when it happened again, it wasn't a surprise. You're saying that Kelly intuited that from their performances? Yes. Kelly was like, go back to that scene. And he said, I'll do it so you don't have to do it. I'll do what? Uh, exactly. I didn't know what it was at the time. She might have been reaching, but she reached in the right direction in the dark. But was it Jane Campion's intention that that, that line was suggesting that they were in cahoots to kill no. Phil? No. So what is he saying when he said, I'll do it? What did he say? What did he mean when he said, I'll do he, it? He was going to take care of the problem that she had that was driving her to drink in desperation, meaning I'm going to get rid of Phil. Or in general, I'm going to take care of you. Like I I'll, guess so. That's how I read it. Even though he was kind of a kid, that he was going to be a man and he was going to take care of his mom. That's really interesting. I mean, I find that this conversation is a lot more interesting than the movie itself. I intuited a lot about it. It did cause me to think there was a lot of shifting dynamics and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, I found it to be kind of a boring movie. I sort of am with you in that I don't think the progression of this story felt very organic. There were several times where I was like, wait, what? I couldn't discern the motivation between Phil being so outwardly aggro and then taking on kind of a big brother role. He was, I didn't know if he was going to kill him or kiss him. And I didn't know who was going to do what to whom. Does that make sense? Like either one of those dudes could have gone in for the kiss or the kill. And so it felt very much like an art house Western because it was a little bit choppy and convoluted at times, but not bad. I wasn't bored, but the journey there wasn't always a smooth acceleration. It was kind of like I was being held there by the power of this movie. It's kind of perplexing to me, the power of the dog. I firmly left this movie experience being like, that was a boring ass movie. And now all of the stuff is revealed. There's so much to explore and it's quite packed in there. So it's it's kind of a weird thing because I'm going to give the Oscar frontrunner for 2021 a boring. Really? And yet it inspired a very interesting conversation. It was just kind of, I kind of felt like I was being held against my will. The themes, I guess, are relevant. We needed them to fill out the whole picture. Like we never got to see Bulldog Harvey on screen. All we, we could just kind of heard about him. I'm not entirely sure that it necessarily should have mattered for us to get an understanding of every one of these character motivations, but I don't think it would have hurt. You don't want your murders to be ambiguous and confusing. <laughs> I mean, just kind of like a lot of really discordant notes up top, like non-contextual scenes kind of strung together. I don't know that the last 15, 20 minutes can make up for the setup, which was delivered in this really discordant manner. I'm, I'm repeating myself. I think that I'm feeling really insecure in my review, but I'm going to hold on to that post-movie feeling and kind of plant my flag, but also say that there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. Yeah, I'll say it's an all right movie, but it did come with its frustrations. It's just there, there was enough in the character motivations and I loved every actor involved so that it lingered enough for me. 
It's just kind of whatever they want to throw at me. And, you know, it was all right what they did. What would Buckshot Hank do? <laughs> I think that was the closest you got, the whole review right? of Bronco Henry. So there you've got it. An all right from Wes, a boring from Iris. That's the end of our discussion on The Power of the Dog. We want to hear from you what you think about it. So hit us up, 818-835-0473 or whatevermovies at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices. And we really appreciate your support. So keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electric acid. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.